0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk Well welcome ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third of Cambridge Assessment's uh, four uh, forum seminars of 2009. So I'm very pleased indeed to be able to welcome and to introduce you Peter Timms. Peter is a professor at the School of Education at Durham University and he's also the director of the uh, Centre for Evaluation and Monitoring in Durham. Uh, They're famous for running a suite of tests and uh, assessment systems, and you've probably heard of PIPs and Midius and Yellis and the Alice system, and they kind of span the whole of compulsory schooling. Peter, in particular, has got a a long and noble history of uh, keeping the awarding bodies and the test development agencies on their toes, uh, and that's largely because the results from uh, the tests that Peter runs uh, don't necessarily agree with the results from the examinations that we run and the test development agencies run. And Peter's published uh, a number of reports over the years challenging the uh, validity of educational uh, um, indices of educational standards rising over time. Peter's got a wide range of interests in education, um, they range from ADHD uh, to reading to research ma- methodology. But tonight he's going to be speaking to us about something that's really at the centre of uh, educational assessment theory, which is the relationship between the form of an assessment and its function. So Peter, I'd like to hand over to you.
1: Well, good afternoon, and uh, many thanks uh, for inviting me here, and it's great to see so many people, friendly faces in the audience. I hope you'll be friendly with your questions when I, I move down there later on. Um, let me start off by saying what I'm going to do, and, th- and then do it, and then, and then kind of summarize at the end. So I'm going to start off by saying something about forms of assessment, which you all know already, but just to kind of remind us of where we've got to, and the different functions of assessment, which you also know, but just kind of remind us, and then look about matching form to function, and, and where that seems to go uh, well, and, and where there's a mismatch, um, famous occasions for that. And then look at this uh, challenge of the uh, multi-method, multi-matrix uh, way of looking at uh, validity and, and apply that eventually to, um, uh, to our examinations and see if, it, if we can get, learn something from that particular way of looking at data um, and ask what we are assessing by GCSEs, A-levels and our other exams. Um, I want to look at the globalisation of assessment, um, which uh, a book's come out recently by Elena Grigorenko, and and I think that's got something to say um, about form and function and and about um, the ways in which one might assess different traits. Um, and talk about that um, in general terms, and see if there's things to be learnt from it. And then talk about uh, possibilities of profiling rather than giving single grades, and the IT possibilities that are opening up, um, which are only just beginning to be um, picked up and capitalised on by all of us working uh, within assessment. Uh, and then finally, some conclusions. <clears throat> Okay, so traditional forms of assessment. Well, of course, the pencil and paper. That's the one that we all did when we were at school. That's the one that we were all examined on and and, and made our way up through the system. Um, If we criticise it, maybe we should say we aren't where we are because it would have been different exams and they'd have picked different people. But but anyway, that's uh, made us what we are today. Um, There's also individual and group assessments and that might be by individuals making those assessments of the way people behave or it might be by interviews or it might be groups that are judged and there's a movement in the universities towards group assessment where groups must work together in order to uh, get some of the percentage on on their degree classification there's observational assessment and classroom observations and, uh, and there's a good sophisticated way to do that um, Ofsted do it but not in a sophisticated way but there are, there's observational assessment around and that's it, pretty important and there are of course clinical and psychometric tests and they're pretty well developed and, and they're in use day in, day out and some of them are used around the world uh, we're using one at the moment ourselves the SDQ Strengths and Difficulty questionnaire produced by uh, Robert Goodman for use uh, for clinical identification of children with um, depression and anxiety and we're using it across schools um, and there are many tests of that sort very widely used based on classical test theory but we've seen major recent advances um, and it's computers that's really shifting us here Um, The administration of tests on computer is now a real possibility and is very widely based. I'm aware um, of Warwick Mansell having produced a piece recently, and and I think there were some interviews from Cambridge Assessment on that. Uh, His conclusion was that the promises were not yet fulfilled. And he may be right about that, and maybe it's a tough thing to do, and that's the reason for the slow movement. But there's no doubt that there's advancement in in the way that the computers are being used there. And the capacity to shift the form of the assessment from away from the single test to the use of video, sound, or whatever else that's going to be involved there uh, must be important. The marking online, that interactive marking, that immediate marking, and, and the feedback within that, including the marking of text, And although we've seen that in the United States and not in this country, there are some impressive bits of software that can mark text. we get immediate data analysis, um, which can feed back into the assessment itself uh, and the software to make all this thing kind of possible. There are theoretical advances um, and I think probably the most important for us are theoretical advances in psychometrics and that's item response theory and in particular rash modelling and I'm going to say something about RASH a little bit later and its history within England and how it uh, was a promising development in this country which was essentially stopped for about um, 50 years. Okay, what about the functions of assessment? Uh, Here I'm going to put a list down of official uses of assessment. And since you all know those official uses of assessment, um, I I suggest you play a slight game. And if you just in your mind think of some of the uses of assessment, maybe have two or three of them, and see if I put them up as I put them up on this screen here. I know Paul's listed uh, more than I'm going to put up on this screen, so he can certainly beat me. But let's let's see if others can do that. Well, there's an an obvious one, which is certification, and we're doing that business all the time. Um, There's another one, which is admission. And here's Cambridge University, which is heavy on its admissions policy for assessment, and that's partly from the exam results which come, but also partly from those individual interviews that they conduct on a very large scale with prospective students. Uh, But there's admission at all levels, and it's often first past the post there. Uh, The selection, which is part of that, and sometimes the admission is just you get past the post, you're in the club. Sometimes you've got to beat other people to be there. Accountability, which is dominating the world and dominated English assessments now, and having a a backwash effect on those assessments uh, and perhaps one of the reasons why we're seeing such a a massive change is English assessments now at the end of key stages Uh, there's an allocation of resources so we'll get an assessment in order to decide what allocation of resources you need, maybe that's the number of children with special needs uh, or whatever else that you would uh, do for that, there's research purposes that I won't go into, uh, monitoring purposes in general to track and know where children are, to spot those that fall by the wayside And even developing a new idea of special needs as a child who fails to thrive in the educational system uh, rather than one that can be identified with a single test at one time. Uh, And a move for dyslexia to identify children who will not uh, be able to read despite good teaching. That requires the monitoring and tracking over time or monitoring on a research basis or or a school basis or a whole country basis which comes from the uh, international assessments. Identification of special needs which links into that uh, and also in preparation for teaching so all teachers will assess before they teach or they should uh, and continually on through that to see how they've done the feedback mechanisms to the teachers assessment for learning would fit into that. Then, of course, there's the informal assessment, which is part of our life, and we just can't help it, and we're doing it all the time. And it's part of teaching, and it's part of learning, and it's part of being taught. And so it's just a feature that's part of there. And I, and I think sometimes those informal ones become official ones, where somebody who's known someone is suddenly asked to do a reference for them, and then they're kind of ticking boxes which are categorizing them and so on. So these functions are very varied, um, but we tend, when we're doing it, to match a single form to, a single, to all those functions, like it or no. But I put it to you that that really matching form to function are obvious in some cases, so that if we're going to select uh, footballers, we should really look at them playing football. And that's a straightforward use, and and, and nobody would deny it, I presume. If they're going to score goals, then they're going to get the the positions on the team. Uh, And that might also be obvious for teachers in the classroom. Maybe we should be selecting teachers because people observe them in the classroom as good teachers. We don't largely do that. But I think there's a nice little um, side story here that if you look at the success of independent schools, and once you've done studies that take into account prior attainment and achievement, you still find very often that the independent schools do better, not as as well as the raw data would suggest, but still a little better than the state schools. And if you look there, you'll quite often find that they only take their teachers after they've taught a bit in the state sector, and after they've proved that they're pretty good at it. So the selection of teaching by teaching has got to be a, a proper way forward if we can do that. And maybe we should be selecting teachers by their bedside manner. Hang on a minute, that can't be the old story. We've got to select them whether they actually cure the patients. (laughs) And we've got to get knowledge in there. So it's not as straightforward as as kind of just matching form to function there. We need to get other things in there. Um, And really, let me just pick one other example here from the mismatching of form to function. Um, In the selection of people, it's, it's widespread that we interview people and that interview very often dominates the appointment of people to all sorts of jobs across the world. But it's pretty clear that its predictive validity is pretty well zilch once you've taken into account previous um, attainment levels, or in fact, developability measures. So Hunter and Smet's work in this area is pretty clear that an interview is pretty well useless if you've got other information. You should really base it on attainment, or if you can, watch people doing the job, know how they did that job beforehand. And we're really using something in there, an assessment which is really not fit for purpose. But in thinking about these different things, I I think it's useful to distinguish two particular things. One are deep characteristics of people. These are pervasive characteristics. Those are kind of character features, personality features, developability measures, things that are hard to change, that stay with persons over a long time. From those things that can be picked up fairly quickly, so I'd call them developed competencies, that's kind of techniques or procedural knowledge related to particular areas or subject knowledge. And I think that these two distinctions um, have an influence over whether you choose a form to match um, the function of the test or whether you're prepared to go outside that and use different forms for that. And I'm going to come back to that in in a little while. Behind that, what do GCSEs and A-levels measure? Do they measure specific abilities like your chemistry ability, your French ability, Or are they mentioning something deeper than that, such as developability or whatever else? And maybe you're going to say both, but I'm just going to come back to that in a little while. But that is behind what I'm saying here and asking those kinds of questions. There's a challenge here um, set up by Campbell and Fisk in 1959 um, called a um, multi-method, multi-trait way of looking at data. And I'm going to put up a a correlation matrix here um, and just to get the idea of um, what I'm saying here. The idea is that if we have... uh, two things that we want to measure, say trait A and trait B, and we measure them in different ways using form 1 and form 2. So that might be, for example, that in form 1 we use questionnaires to measure trait 1. So we might be measuring um, extroversion, and we might be measuring um, IQ. So we'd use a pencil and paper to answer those two things. So we'd have two different traits from that, and presumably uh, on the pencil and paper form 1 we're going to get low correlations when we look at the correlation between the two traits, because they're measuring different things, they should be different. Then the challenge comes if we try to measure the same traits using a different form. So we do that by somebody else's observations and rating of of their friends, or we do it by observational data. So now we have form two, and we should, if we've got that trait right, find strong correlations, however we measure it, by the different forms, and weak correlations in the other way. When Campbell and Fiske wrote about this in the 1959, they they really looked pretty hard and they found that actually this was a real worry to those um, psychologists who were developing their assessments and that in fact these correlations tended to be nothing like this and you tend to get high correlations here and the correlations went with the form of the assessment, not the thing, the trait that you were measuring. Uh, So this convergent and discriminant validity approach is a challenge to social scientists and maybe a challenge to all of our assessments. Okay, so, so if I just put this into to common parlance, suppose we took a, a French test of uh, speaking and, and written forms, uh, would we expect them to correlate? No need to answer. <laughs> I could ask it differently. Is there convergent validity? Or if I ask that in a slightly different way, is there a single construct that we call French? And maybe you're thinking, well, well, no, there isn't actually. Uh, And and then, so how can we give people certificates for French if it actually means different things within that? And I'm struck here by a a visitation that I had, uh, somebody staying in my house who was uh, a Chinese academic. And uh, his wife was staying with us as well because uh, she was doing something about English language in Durham University. But when he arrived, it became clear that I couldn't communicate with him at all, except through gesture, except through hand signals we got as far as discovering that I knew how to play Go and he was an expert, and and that that was about it. But later on, it became clear that as an academic, he reviewed papers in engineering written in English. And he wrote papers that were published in academic articles in English. But he couldn't talk and understand or speak or or just completely um, incapacitated. But his capacity with the written form was very high. Um, to a a very high degree. So, so, well, maybe in French it's slightly different, but in Chinese it was pretty clear, and uh, in our tradition in England um, we did that. Similarly, um, having done Latin for goodness knows how many years, from seven years to to, to 16, and decided I hated it when I was 30, but had to get the O level to get to Cambridge at one point, um, I discovered that when hitchhiking in uh, Europe that I got a list from a Roman Catholic priest, and and, and maybe I thought, well, I could speak a bit of Latin to him. But then I realised I didn't even know the word for, for yes, or, or left or right, I mean I was just c- completely hopeless, I knew about virgins and tables but that was, that was about it okay. so a second kind of challenge here I think um, is assessment in, in the areas of globalisation and I'm really um, reporting some work coming from a book edited by uh, Elena Grigorenko um, um, on that globalisation of assessment, so she's really interested here in psychological assessments but I think there are messages uh, for all of us and I'm going to start with a quote from, from a Nobel prize winner here who says that culture is irrelevant when it comes to brain function. That's uh, from Roger Sperry, who's the the guy who worked on split brains. Uh, There were some operations to cut the brain down the corpus callosum, and, and he did that work on there. So he's really saying that it doesn't matter what culture you're looking at, the brain's the same everywhere, so the psychological assessments, actually it's the same fundamental principles we're talking about, if you've got a fundamental measure there. And so you'd find other people saying that what we should do is take Californian psychological tests and use them in Central Africa. And this book book is a real challenge because it looks at the psychologists from Russia and the people working in Africa and elsewhere, and you find real challenges to this view. So it might be that brain function is the same, but cultures are very different. People value different things, see things in different ways. Um, And maybe the psychologists of Russia cut the cake in different ways and see different theoretical structures to explain the same uh, behavior that we see in different ways. Maybe there are equally valid different ways to cutting the cake, and the American and the British psychologists uh, don't have it all their own way. Further, I think that actually brains change. Although we have similar brain function, and we all know about the taxi drivers and their knowledge and how when they learn the knowledge and the brain scans before and afterwards, we see it growing in that – It's also pretty clear that the brain of somebody who's Chinese and somebody who's English must be different. They've learned that in different ways. And in fact, there are recent brain scans showing that when we brain scan a Chinese person doing mathematics and somebody who's brought up in an English tradition doing mathematics, it's different parts of the brains that light up. We're actually using different parts of the brains in order to do simple arithmetical functions. And that's quite a challenge as well to think that that's the case. And it's the visual spatial part that's being used by the Chinese rather than the other, and maybe that's something to do with the way that the language was trained and the hours and hours that are spent on those pictures and so on. We also know that our brains differ, and they differ just as faces differ, or our bodies differ when we look at them. We also know that those brains can be scanned, and I I was kind of thinking some time ago that, well, maybe we could use brain scans to see whether people have got dyslexia and so on. And then I discovered that, in fact, when in those books or in the articles you see the brain scan of the dyslexic compared to the normal... What you're actually seeing is a composite of about 15 people who had dyslexia. And if you see a single person with dyslexia, you can't tell it from a normal person. It's only when they're overlaid that you start to see the difference. But last, um, two weeks ago, actually, at the early conference, I did see a paper looking at identification of ADHD using brain scans. And they seem to have made some progress in that direction. So maybe there's something in that, maybe not. But that's deep brain functioning that we're talking about. Could we do that for chemistry? Well, I really doubt it, because the chemistry isn't a deep function of the brain. It's kind of overlaid on that. Maybe you could, like the taxi drivers, but there's nobody suggesting anything like that at the moment. We're a long way off that. Could you do it for developability? Could you get something that showed a higher IQ compared to a lower IQ brain? Well, I've not seen anything on like that at all. There are some kind of physical measures that seem to correlate well, but not. Okay, so back to that distinction that I was making. There's this deep functioning of the brain... ...as against the developed competencies. And I think they they are different from the way that we conceive of them... ...and different from the way that we assess them... ...but it has implications for the form of the tests. So there's tests of the fundamental... ...as opposed to educational outcomes that we might measure. So the ones that we might be able to use across the world... ...as opposed to those that have to be culture-specific... ...or curriculum-specific or whatever else. And I want to suggest tentatively... ...that if you're measuring deep, pervasive characters then actually you should be measuring him in several different ways and checking that you're getting the same answer because you're getting some indication about deep functioning. But if you're developing competencies, something that somebody's learned over a period, something that somebody's going to apply, then you really more need to match that form to the function. The the form must be closer to the thing that actually the person is supposed to have learned. So let's come back to the GCSEs and the A-levels. And let's consider that convergent and discriminant validity. And I'm going to put up the same kind of correlation table that I put up earlier, but this time I'll put in some figures from GCSEs and from A-levels amongst themselves and apart. And the the kind of uh, slip that I'm making is to suggest the different forms to assess our GCSE versus A-level and the different traits that we measure might be English literature in both cases. So let's have a look at that correlation table. I've only picked uh, three subjects I know there are more than that, but I thought it would be too much on the scale. But but the principle is what I want to get to. So if we look, say, for GCSEs, I've got English Literature, History and French, and we look at the correlations between them, they're around 0.6. And in fact, if I put up all of the rest of the GCSEs, you might get some down to 0.4, maybe 0.3 occasionally, you might get up to 0.7. But they're that kind of order. They're all about the same. If we look at the correlations amongst A-levels, Well 0.53 to 0.7 between English literature and history so that's a pretty strong correlation but they're pretty similar order of magnitude. If we look at the ones if they were measuring the same trait if they were measuring the same thing and just a little bit older then we'd expect that English literature would correlate with English literature well 0.57 which isn't a very different figure from the rest of the figures we see on the table and similarly if we take history to history well French to French is pretty high there but don't forget it's beaten by a 0.7 over here. So actually, we are not getting what we might expect to see in this type table if we do that. Um, So what it seems to be saying is that there's little evidence of that convergent or discriminant validity when it comes to measuring a subject. Of course, we might say, well, French at A-level is very different from French at GCSE, or we might say, but then we've got to explain why we see similar correlations across the other GCSEs or across the other subjects. So GCSEs, according to this, seem to be measuring the same thing. They were all correlating with one another at about the same level. And the A-levels seem to be measuring the same thing. And also the GCSEs correlated about the same level with the A-levels. They all seem to be measuring more or less the same thing. It seems that the form of the assessment is pretty important. They're all similar kinds of assessments, and they're all measuring similar things. So we've got a deep function that's operating, and it's being applied to different contexts. And then we're measuring them the same way, and they're all correlating with one another. Well, an early recognition of that comes from the view that, in fact, the best predictor of an, any single A-level will be the average GCSE result. And that's recognising that the average GCSE is measuring the same thing across all of those GCSEs. That's why it works like that. And I think that the first person to recognise that is Carol Fitzgibbon. And she did that at the beginning of the Alice project. When she was looking for predictors of A-levels in order to run a monitoring system, confidence... uh, a confidential measurement-based self-evaluation, so that's more than 25 years ago, and she set up a system and looked for that. And interestingly, she actually used a theoretical basis to look for it. She says, well, look, every O-level, it was O-levels in those days, is actually measuring the child's developed ability or the capacity to pass an examination, but each one's measuring with error, and each one's got a problem because it was with a good teacher or a bad teacher. What I need is the average across the lot, and that will give me the best measure that I've got of their developed ability, their capacity to pass examinations. If you look at Rob Coe's recent paper using rash analysis for uh, GCSEs or for A-levels and he concludes that in fact they're really measuring the same construct underneath there you get variations within that um, and uh, one that stands out as being very different amongst the the A-levels or the examinations is something like Urdu uh, and that of course stands out as being quite different in its nature uh, quite different in its origin and it's not something that's been studied over that course but something that people have picked up throughout their lives and it just doesn't fit the model but the rest do, and they fit it very well indeed. So if that's the case, what, what, you know, what's to be said about this? Um, maybe we just tolerate that, and that's the way it's all worked, and it's all worked very well, and so on. Um, but I, I think some people might say, oh, well, we need teacher-given grades in here. We don't need that. And, and let me assure you that this doesn't solve the problem. Um, some years ago, when um, O-Level and CSE switched to GCSE, there was a lot of teacher assessment in that first year for GCSE, uh, and we had a lot of data on that as part of TVI evaluation and we were able to look at the correlations from one subject to another and the idea was one of the specific aims that we would recognise somebody's specific attainments in geography as opposed to in history and so on and so in fact the correlations were intended to drop but they went up, those correlations from one GCSE to another got up to 08 And I think what we're getting is a kind of halo effect. You see a student in a good light, they get rated in a good light, and that works from subject to subject across the teachers because they're talking in the classroom and the way that individual is behaving. So I think the teacher assessment really can lead us down the wrong path down here. But I see that the computers get us a real opportunity because they allow us to use a variety of forms in our assessments. And that means that we are able to give profiles to students, not just the single grade, not this is your grade for that subject, rather this is the strength and the weakness in those areas. So we're thinking about variation in the feedback we do. We don't have to be given single grades. If you get a, a pass in college in the United States and you come out with a degree, you get a profile of strength and weaknesses. You don't just get your one or whatever it is may also be that if we shift using computers and we get anchors in that, we can get more consistency over time, to come back to, to Paul's earlier point about, um, about tracking standards over time. And it also means that we might be able to get adaptive tests into what's going on. So let me just remind you of the the difference between a a kind of adaptive test and the rest. In a a kind of traditional test where we've got uh, this kind of range of students in there and if we were writing a test for them, a maths test or whatever, we'd start to write items and we'd kind of aim some in the average level and we'd make sure we get a few items at the high level and so on and we kind of sprinkle them across there in order to make sure we've covered the children. And then everybody does the test. And then you get good reliability and you get good discrimination and so on, but... The experience for the very able student is not wonderful because they've been able to do those items for years. And the experience of the less able student is awful because they see everybody else able to do them and they're just threatened by them all. So clearly a better way is to do a bespoke test on this and to do an individual approach. And now let's imagine you've got the same continuum, but now let's suppose that we've got all the resources that we could ever want... And now let's suppose it's an individual and we're trying to find the location of that individual on that continuum from low to high. Now if we know a lot about the items, we can now ask an easy item. And if she gets it right, we can ask her a harder item. And if that's right, a harder item. And now she gets it wrong, so we back off to an easier item. In other words, we're adapting our test according to her responses. We need to know the item difficulties before we start. We need to set up a big bank of items. We need to run that. But the experience for that individual is much better because she's really been answering questions that challenge her all the way. And that's true of every child along the way. Further, our errors of measurement will be much less because at the moment, we're asking all the questions in the middle. So the very high and the very low have large errors of measurement. Um, We've got large uncertainties, not in the centre. So this requires a lot of working up. And furthermore, the length of that test is going to be about a third of the time of the traditional test. So we spend much less time on an individual to do it. So it's got to be a better way to do this. So why aren't they all adaptive now? Why aren't you doing adaptive tests? Why aren't we all doing that? Well, I think there's some pretty clear reasons for it. One, security. If you've got item banks in there and people start finding out what the item banks are and they will try to do that, then you've got a problem. So in the United States with the SATs, when they set up adaptive tests, uh, a few people went in and they do the adaptive test, they come out and they brain dump what they can remember, then in goes the next person, brain dumps it, and before you know it, you've got a kind of parallel item bank out there, and, and, and that's worth a bit, on the, a bit on the market. So there are real problems if you've got high stakes tests here, but nevertheless, there are, there are advantages to do that. A kind of additional way to do this, and this is a challenge by Jack Stenner working on exiles in the United States, is to say we should be able to write items where we know the difficulty before we trial them. Now, I know the mantra across all examination authorities that you can't do that. You only know the difficulty after you've done it. But he has been able to do that and show that that's the case. There's a Taiwanese group that have produced um, algorithms producing Raven's Progressive Matrices items of known difficulty before they're they're produced. So there's a kind of challenge out there. There's also the time on the development. If you want to produce uh, pencil and paper maths tests for year three pupils, you could do that in a month. A few people get together, write the items, trial them and so on. But if you want to do a computer adaptive testament, you've got to spend a couple of years on it. So this is a difficult thing to do. You've got to have lots of items in your item banks. You've got to have hundreds of items in your item banks. So that adds to the time on which you're doing it. You've got to trial those items and get the difficulty of each item. That means that for the very hard items, you've got to trial them with a lot of very able people who are very rare. So you've got to get the items there. So this is difficult, so it's expensive. So these are good reasons why they're not done. But I want to share with you an up-and-running system that we have running that's been able to be built because over years we developed assessments in each year in primary school and then we were able to take the items from that and build up the item difficulties. And that test is called INCAS, so that's an interactive computer assessment system and it's meant for all children in primary schools and and some in secondary schools. It's got a modular design and it's meant to be diagnostic. And I'm going to share with you some of the items within that. So this is an assessment for maths and for reading, and it's broken down into subunits. So the subunits are bits that contribute to reading. So if I just concentrate on reading for a moment, in order for somebody to be able to read, they need to be able to um, recognise words that are on the page. And it's clear that we as readers, when we read, typically read and go through every word on the page. Now, the mantra was that that wasn't true some years ago, the word was that we kind of skimmed across and then used our knowledge to put it together. But the use of um, machines to see where we track makes it clear, actually, that we look at every word and we actually decode, and we do it very quickly. So a good reader must be able to decode known words rapidly. Secondly, they must be able to decode words they have never seen before and spend their time on it. Third, they must be able to read the text and make sense of it. And there are some people who can bark the text, but they don't know what it means. That's a challenge for a teacher. And then you must be able to spell and so on. Okay, so this, I'm going to share with you a couple of items to just get a feel for this. And I'm going to show you some from the word recognition and the word decoding. So if we're going to do word decoding, we want to see if they can decode a word they've never seen before. So we better make sure they've never seen them before. So we'd better make up some words that don't exist. And that's what we've done. And so it, it works like this. So that's the kind of item that you would see there. And we've got lots of those items of known difficulty and children going with really easy ones and they can get up to really hard ones. Or if we take word recognition, then we must make sure that they're not decoding it in the way they would do Soza. They must be able to recognise it. So we've got lots of words of that sort. And I'll share one with you. So, for example... And in that case, you can see that you can't get it just by decoding. You must actually recognize that word in itself. So it's a kind of spelling thing, but an immediate recognition. And at the same time, of course, we're able to pick up the time that people take on this and, uh, and, and work out how long they're doing it. I must say that there's a kind of side detraction here. I kind of thought naively that if we had how long people took to respond to these questions, particularly in maths, it would give us not just could they do it, but how long for each item. It turns out that's just, uh, just not helpful at all. There are people who can do these things that spend hours agonizing over it, and you just don't get good information from it. Okay, what it means is that when you've done that, you can then give profiles, not just a reading level, but a profile. So that we do that in this kind of way, where you'd get a, a kind of level for the age of the child and an age equivalent within that. And then you can compare it. And then you can start to look at the randomized controlled trials on reading and say, well, if a child has a problem with word decoding, what do you do about it? Well, these are the trials that worked in that particular situation, and so on. Well, these tests are pretty widespread use. So, for example, in Northern Ireland now, for the third year running, 900 schools have to do this by statutory assessment. You might be thinking, well, what are they doing about the security of the items? And what are they doing about the high stakes? And that's where we have an agreement that this data will not be collated centrally. It will not be used to hold teachers to account. It's only there for the formative purposes and feedback to parents. And, in fact, the agreement is that there will be a second sampling procedure in Northern Ireland to monitor standards over time, so that you separate out one from the other. we would also say that in the um, Alice, Ellis and Midius, we also use a baseline test for developed ability, and that uses a computer-adaptive assessment of maths, vocabulary, and various non-verbal bits. And that's used for children who are aged 11 up to children who are aged 16, and it's the same assessment from the very less able 11-year-old to the more able 16-year-old, and they're all on a single scale, and that's with more than 100,000 children across the world um, in different countries. So I think it's possible. But behind it, you need to have uh, some measurement issues in that, and you need to have item response theory. Or, as I would see it, you need RASH in there, which uh, allows you to do this in in a simple way. And I want to just recount a little bit about um RASH's use in the UK and, and how it's evolved over time. England, specifically, has had a long interest in item banking. Um, it also has a long interest in matrix sampling. And in fact, that early interest came uh, from the NFER. And it comes from 1964 from uh, Bruce Chopin working at the NFER. And he's working in the United States with Ben Wright, who's following um, George Rush's major breakthrough 50 years ago now. And he becomes his first student on rash Modelling. So Bruce Chopping comes back to the UK and writes papers on sample-free approaches to item difficulty. Notice that real distinction between item difficulty as we usually conceive it, the percentage of children that get it right, to a sample-free estimate of the difficulty. And it's that sample-free estimate that allows us more ably to monitor stuff over time and also to create computer-adaptive assessments and also to create objective measurement and therefore to move social science onto a more scientific basis. Ooh, something there. he persuaded people that we should really be getting item banks of maths and other items and science items and we should be producing those on a pretty extensive scale uh, and be able to use that to monitor over time and for teachers to produce their own tests by mixing those items that were produced. But this system was attacked. In fact, in 1981, Chopin was able to write that there are statisticians advising um, the, what was the DC, whatever the DCSF was in those days that you can't monitor standards over time uh, and that in fact all this is nonsense and we shouldn't be doing it uh, and, and, and really we need to stop this work that, that has any ideas of item response theory or RASH in it. In fact, Harvey Goldstein attacked that whole idea of uh, unidimensionality, RASH and everything else in a series of seminars and of publications. And he won the argument at that time and work stopped on all of that, stopped dead. And it stopped so dead that, in fact, statisticians at NFER were forbidden from using rash in any analysis. It was a kind of imprimatur coming down from on high. Um, Chopin himself left the NFER and had a job in uh, Singapore at that time. In fact, he was, um, busy- he was killed on his way out there. But that's a, a kind of sad story. In a hotel room. Mike Lineker is one of those who's picked up the, uh, uh, the vanguard and his quote, and I'll read that out there, and the chop in supervision, British psychometrics could have led the world, could have led the world. Instead, entrenched interests condemn Britain to a 60-year regression. And it meant that really we didn't have any work in that area, whilst there was major work going on in all other parts of the world. That means uh, Australia with very strong that amount, ACA, Australian Council for Educational Research. You'd see strong work going on in Europe. You'd see strong work going on in Germany. You'd see a lot of it going on in the United States. You'd see all of the uh, international assessments, that's TIMS, PISA, PEARLS, based on item response theory, some just on RASH. And that's based on that and that expertise really just not developing in this country. So I'm going to kind of summarise this and uh, a little bit earlier, but we'll open it up. I think I've said enough for, for people to, to comment strongly on this. So let me say that I think that uh, we need to recognise that exams and testing are changing, and they're changing dramatically in this country. One thing that we note, for example, is that there's a kind of swing of the pendulum that we're all aware of. So um, about 12 years ago... I started the PIPs project, Performing the gates in Primary Schools, and I did it by approaching a, sec- a primary school in the Newcastle area and asking if I could come in to do a maths test that i developed with some 11-year-olds. And I went into the school and the teacher said to me, um, ooh, I'm not sure that they'll be quiet while you do that test. I'm, they're not used to doing tests. I've never done a test. And I sat them in a row, sat them so they couldn't copy from each other, and gave them a half-hour maths test. And she was amazed at the end of it. She said, ooh, they kept quiet for that, didn't they? Well, that was amazing. Well, that was was a swing of the pendulum from the 11-plus. For the 11-year-olds, they'd have been doing nothing but testing. They swung to a situation where they did no testing, which is when I went in there. And then the key stage testing started and that's now swung so that everybody was doing nothing but practice tests from QCA time after time after time and now we've got rid of key stage 3, we've got rid of key stage 1, we're about to get rid of key stage 2 or we're about to go to some nonsense single level tests if somebody's advising the minister that this is a way forward. Uh, and so we're going to finish up with um, kind of single level tests for a while and no doubt they'll go. The pendulum swung it's swung from 11 plus to no testing to excessive testing and now it's Going back to very little testing. Uh, so, times are changing, and times, no doubt, are presenting opportunities as, as, as well as problems for us. Um, uh, and it's really, I think, the kind of ignorance of what testing is for that means you get such dramatic swings. You can promise the earth, and people don't have the knowledge to say that it won't work. And then you can find that you've got there, and people say, oh, We shouldn't be doing any testing, I and mean, you can swing that way. But really, we've got major opportunities. IT really does present um, possibilities there that we just haven't capitalized on. Lots of people are working on that, but those systems have yet to come. And I think that some of those possibilities have yet to be realized. Simulations in which you can put people to express a different way to, to, to exist and see different worlds and how would they react in that kind of situation. You can get that kind of thing going on. Or maybe you can get uh, headphones on with somebody in the classroom, with somebody else talking to them while they're actually in that individual situation. And you can pick up data. And the amount of data you can collect is continuous and it's amazing. And it's just not been possible before. We're no longer constrained by the pencil and paper tests that we once were. It was the only way to collect that official data. So I think the new forms can really flourish here, that we can actually get a hold of judgments by individuals, and we can use things like facets model, nuances in um, item response theory and the rest, in order to kind of ground our judgments against known ways of working, and we can help use IT to help that. And I think that adaptive tests really are possible, and the UK can lead the way. Thank you.
0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgesessment.org.uk.